Hi, welcome to this week's episode of The Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. On The Eater Upsell, a weekly podcast brought to you by your friends at eater.com, Helen Rosner, which is me, and Greg Morbido, who's my co-host right over there, hey. talk with some of... Oh, hey, Greg. Hey, Helen. How's it going? I'm good. Just doing the intro. Oh, I love these. In- I love this. I love these intros. I love this part. The good part is it's like right about to happen. Ready? On this week's episode, this is the part where I say what we're doing this week. Greg and I are talking with Chris Shepard, who, like everybody we talked to on the upsell, is one of the most interesting, coolest, most successful, smartest people in the entire world. His particular section of the world in which he is cool, smart, and successful is Houston. Chris Shepard is the chef and owner of Underbelly, a restaurant in Houston that synthesizes the city's extraordinarily diverse culinary population under one roof. He does really, really cool things with that and approaches the notion of fusion or multifarious cuisine in an incredibly unique way. He's also got a fascinating side project. He signed a five-year lease on a restaurant space he'd been eyeing for a really long time, and every single year he turns that restaurant into a totally different restaurant. It's called One Fifth. It's currently a steakhouse, and it's about to become something else. So stick with us as Greg and I talk with Chris Shepard about his culinary philosophy, what it's like to be riding the rising tide of Houston as one of the hottest cities in America right now, and his secret to staying cool while he's on his feet all day. Spoiler alert, it is pedicures. It's a pretty rollicking conversation, but before we get into that, a quick reminder to subscribe to The Eater Upsell, and if you are already subscribed, please make sure to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast listening platform you're listening to us on. Thank you for that from the bottom of our hearts. And now, Greg, I understand you have something you want to talk to us about. Absolutely, Helen. I I was very curious to hear your thoughts on hands reaching into photos to grab little tiny plates of food. (laughs) Greg, I love you. How did you know that this was a thing I have thoughts about? Well, it's a thing that I have thoughts about, and they've really sort of calcified in the last few weeks. And I, I feel like there's only a few people in this world where I could talk about this, uh, you know, with someone that was on the same level. And I had a feeling you might also have strong feelings about this. So, okay, so let's talk about the hands reaching for the food. Okay, Um, well, set me up. What are your your feelings that have recently formed? Well, I guess it was specifically seeing the lead artwork for Bon Appetit's uh, 50 Best New Restaurants list, which is, you know, a very big list. And and, uh, let, let me just preface this by saying that I am sure... Not I'm sure. I am actually sure that I have taken photos like this and posted them on Instagram. I think if you look at my feed, it's not a ton of these photos. Uh, I've generally liked them in the past, but when I saw this lead image on the Bon Appetit 50 restaurants list and it was a bunch of tiny little circles and a bunch of hands, I think they had striped shirts, if I'm recalling correctly, reaching across the table, I just realized I am so sick of this kind of composition and that these photos are (laughs) everywhere. And I just, I'm, it's like my eyes kind of sting when I see it now. So I want to paint a, a, a picture for the listeners on our audio show of this kind of photo because it's, it's a, you've absolutely pinpointed a trend that I think has reached its apex, Greg. So it's not just one hand holding out a dish to the camera or like one person holding a plate with dinner on it. It's a very specific type of direct overhead shot, like an 180 degrees, like right from the top, looking straight down onto a table on which a ton of dishes are clustered. And there are a lot of different people's hands and arms reaching in. So you have this almost mosaic effect with a ton of 
circles and textures and the food that's on the plate and the hands that are like it, it's motion and it's lively. It's totally a thing. You totally nailed it. And I am fascinated to hear that you have reached your breaking point. I mean, it's it's okay. I really don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to take this photo. I mean, it's it's kind of a cool it's kind of a cool composition. I just think that sort of professionally for for you know food media um, for everyone to use it, it's just getting overkill. You know, it's just it's uh, one reason I guess I don't like it is that I feel like uh, there is something that people like about this composition of photo. The photo editors know this, you know, the the magazine editors know this. And now it's like de rigueur that if you're doing some sort of feature like this, like you got to have that. And I, I just wish there was more variety and more. I wish we had, didn't have to get to the point where something like that would uh, uh, that I would get burned out on that. Maybe that's selfish, but that's just kind of no. how I feel. I look at a lot of photos like this every day, you know, I think, you know, you've also kind of hit on the fact that there are only so many ways to present a lot of dishes at once in a way that makes people visually interested in the dishes that you're presenting to them. Yeah, that's true. The whole small plates universe that we're living in, the shareable small plates economy means that you have a whole bunch of dishes clustered on a table at once. And like, how do I show off a whole bunch of dishes at once if I'm Bon Appetit or if I'm a random person with an Instagram it's probably going to be an overhead. Well, I, and then you add the hands to make it feel less sterile and more engaged. And also, like I noticed in the Bon Appetit one, there are a couple of prominently displayed pieces of watches and jewelry that I'm guessing have credits. I don't know what the alternatives are, but I think that it's almost like we have a responsibility if you know we're food media people to just like figure out what the next thing is because it's like fatigue, you know? And I mean, I, I equate it very, it's very similar to the trend that is completely swallowing Facebook of those recipe videos, which are basically the video version of that, you know, like the taste the is The direct doubt. overhead? Yeah, with the, with the disembodied hands making something really fast. I mean, I understand why people like that and I get that it's very popular, but like, are we just gonna have, is that gonna be the only way you can shoot a recipe video from now until like, People stop cooking food and looking at the internet? I mean, if the people who sell ads have anything to do with it, I think absolutely. I guess right now I'm just seeing uh, a lot of sort of homo homogeny. Is that the word? Homogeneity? Yeah. Homon Sa sameness. Let's sameness. Ha there's a lot of sameness visually across the food media landscape in photos and videos, specifically recipe videos. But yeah, it's just uh, I guess that yeah, marketing and trends kind of just dictate what what how things are composed and and it it can just feel a little exhausting sometimes. We're all slaves to the trend cycle, Greg. Yeah. I'm, yeah. But the the good news I guess is that like I'm right there with you, you know? We're all we're all there in the trenches being forced to stare at direct overhead shots of people with beautifully skinny wrists and long yes. fingers reaching for an avocado toast on a yeah cluttered I, beautiful table. I mean, I feel like the emoji got their own movie, and if if the trend continues, like we could see a, a movie with just those hands from the videos. You know? Oh man, disembodied Instagram hands. Yeah. Colon the movie. It's got to be a love story between the left and the right. You know. Yeah, the protagonist is a is a is a forearm with like seventeen bracelets on it, holding um, charcoal soft serve outstretched in front of a brightly colored wall. Yes. And yes. her love interest is a guy wearing a thumb ring reaching across a tiled table for 
a cafe cubano. Yes, and they are uh, they're thrust together in the same video. Maybe they don't get along. Maybe they can't cook together because they have. Maybe they're uh, under different filters, and it's just oh. like Expro versus Ludwig, and who can bridge that gap? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I can tell that the critics are going to hate this movie, but maybe it'll make a zillion dollars. Chef Chris Shepard, welcome to The Eater Upsell. Thank you for having me. We're super excited to have you. You are based in the great city of Houston, Texas. Lovely. Houston is hot right now. It is. Like, weather-wise. Temperature, everything. Yeah, yeah, it's warm. <laughs> Culturally, it is um, Eater's roving national restaurant critic Bill Addison's favorite food city in America. There's a lot going on in Houston right now. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful time to be in that city. Just with um, dining across the board, not just high-end, but mom-and-pop places, and um, everybody's just putting their best foot forward, which is really pretty fantastic. I feel like it's been a, a long time coming for people to give Houston its due. Yeah, it has been. Um, it, it has definitely changed over the last 10 years, you know, and uh, just, I guess maybe it's changed because I see it more, um, but just customer-wise, restaurant-wise, city-wise, it's... it's uh, it's a fun time. What changed? You started to see as the as the times changed when chefs and cooks all went out and worked in other places and they all decided, you know what, to come back to Houston to make their their place in their city. And once you started to see that, you saw clientele start to change. And when people didn't have to cook what they thought they had to, um, because that's what guests wanted and just started doing what they wanted to do, that's when it all starts to change. Cooking what they had to, like what was the old style of cuisine? Like how would you? But I think you, you look at Texas, or you look at Houston specifically, and I think the general, the general, um, it's funny, people always say, well, it's lots of Tex-Mex and, and steakhouses and barbecue, and it is and it isn't, you know? Um, Tex-Mex, there's a lot of that everywhere in Texas. You know, that's just part of it. Steakhouses, that's everywhere in the country. And barbecue, I mean, that's definitely an Austin thing. Um, there's actually only until recently barbecue is starting to become more and more um, prevalent in Houston. And so, you know, with the Gulf Coast influence, you always saw crab cakes and you always saw black and this, and, and it, it has changed a little bit. Um, you got people like, you know, Seth and Terrence at Passive Revisions, and you got, you know, Justin Yu with Oxheart and his re revitalization and what he's changing into now, and, you know, Ryan Perra at Cultivari, like they're all doing food that they love to do. And it's, it's a beautiful time, you know, it's, it's, they're doing what they want. And so that changes the food scene and changes the city. So how does a restaurant like yours, you have a couple of restaurants, but Underbelly, mm -hmm. which I think in a lot of ways was a, a madrigal for Houston's reemergence onto the national scene. How did, how did Underbelly and your sort of position in the city help contribute to that? Well, I, I think, so I was at a restaurant before that called Catalan, um, and that was supposed to kind of delve into Spanish cuisine, but the products weren't there. You know, that was 10 years ago. And the products just weren't there. And so it was more of an idea that I wanted to do was to showcase, you know, just like in that region and, and very specifically, it was more they, they cook their own food. And so I took that as a, I need to cook my own food. I need to cook the city's food. And um, we started this thing 
with uh, a few chefs and, and Lindsey Brown, um, who was with the CVB at the time, this, this culinary tours. Um, and we would go out, you know, she got us all together. She said, Houston's becoming more and more popular. How do we show that to people on a culinary wise? And we didn't listen to her. We just sat around. We talked. And it was like, where did you go eat? Where did you go eat? Have you tried this place? Have you tried this place? Have you tried this place? And it was, it felt bad for them because it was like herding cats. <laughs> and so it turned out to, well, why don't we just take people to where we like to eat and off the beaten path places and kind of show people that are coming into Houston what the city was. And it ended up being that we were just showing Houstonians what Houston was. That's that's actually, I mean, I don't know, I feel like that's sort of a mind-blowing realization. Like, you're talking with the CBB, like the Convention and Visitors Bureau, the yeah. tourism arm, and it turns out it's the people who actually live there who needed to be introduced yeah, to where they were living. Houston's built on highways. You know, it's such a mass and sprawling city that if you live in Katy and you work in downtown, I mean, it's a 45-minute drive, but you never get off a freeway. But once you got off those freeways and started really seeing the part of the city's or seeing parts of the city, then you could realize that there was so much more. Um, but it just takes doing that. And so on Sundays, we'd go out and we'd, we'd take people around to like three or four spots, a local market, and it could be, you know, Long Point, which is a street in Houston that's kind of runs parallel to I-10, which, um, but it's, you can go through so many different cultures just on one street. And then you go into Chinatown and it's just massive seven miles of sprawling happiness. And, you know, all these little different parts of the city. And so it was, I felt personally that I needed to learn more about not just the food, but the people. Um, if I was going to get up in front of 20 people every Sunday or once a month or once every three months and talk to them about their cultures. And I found that I truly just love that. I just, I love meeting people and learning from them, not just, and it was the easy, it's the easiest way to learn someone is through food. And when you can sit down at a table and talk food, you can then start to learn culture and people and why and why they came here and why they're doing what they're doing. And so when it became time to open up Underbelly, um, when I decided to do that, it was like, I want to focus on these people and what makes this city what it is. And I want people to see Houston through my eyes and, and not just, I don't want to you know, it wasn't, I don't want to take credit for these things. I want these people to take credit for these things. I want these people to learn and to be shown in a different light when they don't normally get that. I want to know, I want someone when they come in and sit down at the restaurant and they try a dish that this was inspired by this person and you should go see this person. You should go try their restaurant because what they're doing is what Houston is. So sort of a, a restaurant as like a sampler platter. Yeah, I've always said I wanted to just be the gateway drug. <laughs> just a little taste and then go out and find your own. So when you talk you know? about these people, who are you talking about? Uh, it could be anybody like Lawrence at Asian Market or the Patels at, Indi you know, at London Sizzler or Jacqueline at Saigon Pagalac or, you know, the people that make our rice, our rice sticks for, for the goat and dumplings. Like, I want people to understand these folks. Yeah. I want once they have that little taste, you know, we have the when you walk into the restaurant, there's 50 photos on the wall and it's. Dishes and people and places that are inspired, that we are inspired by every day. And then when you get your check, it opens up and it has a little description by zip code. Each one of those photos is, has a zip, their zip code attached to it. So it's kind of the map of the city. And as you know, we politely, you know, we love that you came in. But we, before you come back, we politely request that you go visit at least one of these guys. One of these places. Because we want you to see 
where we come from. There's a broad range of techniques, you know, being mm -hmm. employed in, in the underbelly kitchen. Did you as the chef, I mean, did you have to ask, did you have to embed yourself and learn how to, you know, cook all these different yeah. cuisines or did you bring people in? I mean, how, how, how did you put that together? Both, a little both. I, I think I spent a lot of time going, I spent a lot of time eating out <laughs> and just <laughs> spending time with them. Eating's you know, important. Yeah. Yeah, because it wasn't one of those things where you just go in and you can say, hey, I want to learn about this on the first time. They're going to be like, yeah, okay, thanks. You know, it was over and over and over. And, you know, you talk to the busser and then you talk to the waiter and then all of a sudden you're talking to the owner. And then, then it's like, then there's a friendship conversation and it's, you know, just being a person, mm -hmm. really. And it was learning about them and showing the interest not in just learning from them, but showing interest in them as people. And and that's what I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to know about AJ and how, or the from London sister about, you know why and what his family did and like everything. And so now if I go in, I sit and I have tea with his mom for a couple of hours, and then we talk food. Yeah. So it's, you know, and she'll tell me, stop cooking like an American, cook like this, cook with your soul, cook with your heart. You know what's right. And it's like so it's not just food lessons; it's life lessons, and that's was, was always been important for me. Underbelly's been open for five years. Five years now, and that the, this whole sort of practice that you're talking about in terms of approaching the rich tapestry of Houston's immigrant and ethnic enclaves, and the way that you're connecting your restaurant back not just to communities and techniques, but to specific people and specific restaurants, and mm -hmm. encouraging your guests to spend their money, like to physically, materially, yeah. monetarily support the people that you are helping sort of adapt and distill into Underbelly, feels to me like an incredibly relevant set of practices, like right now, this very second, when the world seems to be exploding in this conversation about appropriation and value and who gets mm -hmm. to cook what and how do we make sure that, you know, white chefs are not just taking techniques and, well, you, the, I mean, it seems like you kind of had this figured out. Well, well I, before anybody yeah, was talking it, it about it. It only makes sense to me, right? I don't want to take. I want to highlight. I want to give respect. I want people to have that respect and to, for people to be seen in all lights. And because it's all just, we're all people, right? It's all a community and it's all a family. And so it's, it's learning from each other and, and giving respect to each other. And I don't know this stuff inherently, right? I didn't grow up learning Vietnamese food in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I didn't. Someone's got to teach me that. I've got to learn it myself, but I've got to understand where it comes from and the people that do it and show respect to them because they're showing the respect to me. Yeah. So it works together. Do you have any rules in terms, like the menu changes a lot and I know that every there's day. like every day mm -hmm. and it's seasonal and you know, you guys do whole animal mm -hmm. breaking, breaking that stuff down. Do you have any rules uh, in terms of how the menu should come together? Like, you know, it should always have X representation, you know, this cuisine here. And the, I mean, like it just, there's such a wide range of things going on there. I'm just kind of curious how you shape that. Well, as, as when we started, it was, it was a lot of really, really, you know, strong, um, like, uh, well tenured cooks that kind of got it. And as we've changed, you, you, those cooks grow, grow up, you know, I think like, um, well, one, she's here, Danielle um, Solainess is here at Kozume, and she's just fantastic, you know, and she's taken her own culture and run with that. But and all of the other cooks that we had have gone and opened their own restaurants and done their things, and that's that's what you want. Um, but it's it's the younger cooks that you need to teach, 
you know, and so that's what we, now I noticed a while back that our menu started going really kind of a more southern influences. And I, and, and I was like, you know, we need to change this. We need to teach these guys. There's books everywhere. You walk into the restaurant and it's just cookbooks everywhere. You know, because when you sit down in the dining room, we wanted you to feel like you're in your grandmother's kitchen. Um, so it's always been a focus to have all books everywhere for any anybody. You know, if you want to sit down and have lunch and read a book, go ahead. Um, but um, we've kind of changed it now to where, you know, our farmers bring us stuff every day. Our ranchers do the same. Um, and so we have to be on our toes. And once I started seeing it going to a lot of Southern and some Korean and some, you know, Mexican and some Vietnamese, but now I, I, I asked my chef, Gary, <coughs> I was like, what I would like to see now is that we take each one of our cooks specifically and give them a culture to focus on for a month. So because every day at 1.30, we sit down and we talk about what we have in house and what the menu is going to be tonight and what stylistically what we're going for. And so cooks will just be like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. But now I'm kind of pigeonholing them in a way so that they can learn more and more. So if they want to do a dish, well, it has to be Vietnamese this month. But next month you get to focus on Thai. And the next month you get to fo focus on Middle Eastern. And the next month you get to do Mexican. So each cook has his, their, his or her own culture that they deal with, and they get to read and learn. And we as chefs help them along the way. And it helps us learn as well. Because they may come and say, I want to do this dish. It's like, uh, I've never had that. Let's go have it. You know, and that, So, all right, Sunday, what are we doing? Let's go eat that dish. And so that we understand it more and more. So um, it's, it's just a, a constant learning thing. Houston, as a city that is so defined by its immigrant populations, mm -hmm. and then also being a Texas city, and then also you're running a restaurant, I feel like the notion of immigration, like virtually every facet of it, must be a constant in your mind right now, especially these days. I think it's always just been there. You know, I don't think I've changed my thought process on any of it. It's just people in one area. And, you know, you started to see it. Houston, I mean, I, I moved to Houston in 95. And I think the diversity is what kept me there. Because my idea was I was going to go to culinary school, and then I'm going to go back to Tulsa, and I'm going to, I don't know, you know. And what blew my mind was all of the people there and all of the stuff that I could learn from these people and learn with these people and just see as a cook, you know. I think it was, there was a, I worked for the Brennan family, and there was a, a Vietnamese restaurant one block away. It's, it's called Mai's, and it's open till four in the morning. And so, you know, you could after, you know, after your shift and you go in and like, it blew my mind. You know, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to think, you know, but the cooks are, you know, the other cooks are like, let's go over to Mai's. Let's try it. I was like, what is this? You know, and I was a young cook and it was like, we're going to go eat Vietnamese. I was like, I've never done that, <laughs> you know? And so it just like when I first tried fish sauce, I was like, I'm not down with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I like the peanut sauce. It's kind of peanut butter. It's delicious. I'll, I'll uh, give me that. And then all of a sudden I started over time learning that I like these textures and flavors and this freshness and this clean. And then I wanted more, you know, it's just as all cooks, I want more, I want to learn more. Um, so I've always just looked at it as people. I don't see barriers and walls and like, I just want to have conversations with people. So. What's it like as a restaurateur in Texas right now in an age of extreme immigration related political anxiety? I mean, you just do what you do every day. You keep people happy. You, your staff has to be happy, the people around you. I mean, I don't— How's your staff doing? Great. Yeah? yeah the positive morale every day. 
you know, it has to be. And so, um, you know, there's a few things that I never really look at, and I probably should more, but I just try and focus not on that, because I think if you focus on political issues all the time, you kind of get lost in what you're really trying to say. And and through food, that's that's our. I think through food, we try to show that everybody can be there together, and and exist. And I think Houston is a is a perfect place for that, because it is just like this melting pot of of cultures, and it works so beautifully. And so if we can do it, everyone can do it. And that's just my general opinion. You know, it's like just quit looking around in fear or not want to learn, but instead learn, because once you learn you can live a lot easier, you know? It's a lot easier to breathe. It's a lot easier to just to be an individual in a society when you can understand people for what they are, who they are. And that's, I don't know, general rules of life for me. I'd like that to be universalized. It, it should be. You <laughs> yeah. know, I, it's, I'm not a political person whatsoever, but I just feel that way about people in general. I was reading um, that you travel, you know, relatively frequently, and when you do, you take, you know, your sous chefs along with you which is really cool. Um, and, you know, just kind of circling back to what you were saying about like, um, you know, young cooks, like getting them to focus, like here's, you know, giving them something to, to focus on and kind of grow and learn. Um, I mean, I just always think that's really cool to hear how, you know, um, young chefs come up in the kitchen and, and like, you know, how they get opportunities. I'm just curious, like, did you ever have any experience like that that inspired you to be a kind of mentor figure like that? Like when you were a young person, did any chef take you under your wing or take you out? Yeah. Or, yeah? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I worked for the Brennan family in Houston for nine years. And um, it was probably 2002. Um, my chef, Carl Walker at the time, he's a general manager there now. Um, his, he had this, he went to the CIA. And so he was going to come up to do this alumni thing. And he asked me, you know, it was kind of the first thing. He was like, hey, do you want to go with me on this? And I was like, what? Yeah. You know, it's the first kind of trip that had happened like that in that restaurant. You know, there have been a couple. But he was like, so we're going to go up to, to Hyde Park for three days. And then we're going to go down to Manhattan for five days. Are you cool with that? And I was like, yes. And Had you been to New York? Never. Never. So I was super, super excited, terrified, didn't know what to expect, any of it. And, I mean, I came as a kid, I guess, you know, when I was like, 14, my dad came to work here, my mom, and I, yeah, so it was like, Hard Rock Cafe, yeah! yeah. <laughs> Typical teenage tourist stuff, yeah. yeah. It, it, so, like, I mean, but Hard Rock Cafe, like, to a 14-year-old is massive, the coolest thing in the entire world. Oh, especially Kevin, back yeah. in, like, 88, you oh know? My God. It was, like, the biggest thing on the face of the planet like at that point in time. Bruce Willis would actually be there, <laughs> yeah, or something. You know? I mean, like, yeah. I was like, look at the guitars, you oh know? Oh, my God. So it was, like, that thing for me, but other than that, like not not for the most part. And so it was funny. We had this discussion last night about my this trip specifically. So we went up to Hyde Park and I helped him do his thing, cooked with the cooks there. And it was like, this is so cool. And then we took a train down into the city. The first night we're here, we do a tasting menu with at Danielle. The next night we do a tasting menu at Babo. The next night we did a tasting menu at Aqua V. The next night we did a tasting menu at Nobu. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Like, as a cook, like, this is amazing. Like, because it, it gets you outside of where you're at every day. You know, you're putting out these dishes and you're just like, man, when is it? You know, we're just doing, we're cooking, we're cooking. This is awesome. We're cooking, we're cooking. And then someone shows you a different light. It's like, oh. So that's why I've always wanted to take someone, you know, if we go do a trip, if we go cook somewhere, I always try and take someone with me. 
and I mix it up with all my staff, um, all my students, because it's like their their chance to see that there's more than what they're doing, and that there's so much more to this industry than just grinding it out five days a week or six days a week in the same restaurant. You know, there's so much more to this and where you can go and where you can see and meet the people. And so, you know, like next week we go to Jacksonville. I've got two of my chefs going with me, you know, and it's kind of, we did it last year and it's the same too. And they're like, I want to go again. Can we go again? Can we go again? And so, <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, and so I take some, wherever I go, I generally take someone with me too. So, so besides Underbelly, you have another restaurant, which is super conceptually fascinating. Mm, um, dumb. Dumb? Are you regretting it? No, (laughs) not at all. Not at all. I just, I feel like it was one of those decisions that when I said it, everybody was like, yeah. And I'm like, are you guys serious? Like, you're you're listening to me? So, Chris, a few months ago on this podcast, Helen and I were talking about our hypothetical dream restaurants. And I actually, mine actually was one fifth before I even knew that this restaurant existed. And Helen said, yeah, well, Chris Shepard just opened that restaurant. And I was like, what? Yeah. So for our listeners who are not up to date on every single episode of The Eater Upsell, where Greg and I fuck around for 10 minutes at the beginning of the episode, um, one-fifth is exactly what the name implies. You had a five-year lease on this space, and every year it's a completely different restaurant. So you're coming to the end of the first year right now, yeah. right? So and we opened – this one was a little bit short. So we, we this, this all came about less than a year ago, back in August. Um, I walked through a property that has uh, – it's right down the street from Underbelly, so it makes really – like I wouldn't have done it otherwise. It's like four blocks, five blocks maybe, um, where it's an old church from the 30s. Um, it was Mark's, which was this beautiful, long-term, kind of high-end fine dining restaurant that just, you know – I Went think Mark the just way got of tired. a lot of high-end yeah. fine dining yeah. restaurants Yeah, that's what these happens, days. you know. Yeah. And um, the real estate guys, we I went in and looked at it, and I talked to Mark while I was there, and he was like, you know, I was like, what do you want to do, man? I mean, he was like, I, if you guys want to come in, it'd be cool. Like, I think you could do something really cool here. And so I went back and talked to the real estate guys, and they were like, you know, we really have an idea for that area that we want to buy the, you know, properties around it and kind of, we're not sure what we want to do. So we, it's a turnkey restaurant. When everybody says, when everybody says turnkey, it automatically, I'm just like, nope. And turnkey means like, it's all there. It's all there. You like, don't even need to buy new chairs. No. Like, it's, no, it's all there. Put food in it, turn the lights on, go. And so why is that a turnoff? That seems like a dream. Because it's conceptually when any customer or guest walks in and had been there, it's the same restaurant. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. They would walk in and be like, this is Mark's, but the food is different. Like, I don't get it. That's you know? so true. I've had that feeling walking into things, spaces that just immediately turned around. And it's it's really hard to make that work. You know? So if you don't go night and day on it, mm-hmm. if you don't really do some work to it, then it feels the same. You know, and so I, I he was like, you know, we really, how about two year lease? And I was like, okay, guys, thanks. I'm out. I got, two years I got nothing, shit to do. Right? Two, right? I got, in restaurant yeah, time, like. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I was like, I got stuff to do. You wasted my day. Thank you very much. And <laughs> my business partner was sitting there and he's like, so basically, you know, you're going to be getting somebody in there that's going to be trying something out. If you only want to do a two year concept, you know, two year lease, they're just be trying it to see if it works. And then they'll go open it someplace else. And I was like, all right, my last words, we'll do five years and I'll change the concept every year. In August, we'll close down. Revamp it, redo it. It'll give us kind of this playing ground to figure out what's next. And Kevin, my business partner, just looks at me and goes, no, <laughs> no, no, no. You realize that my wife and I are having a baby in, t- in a month? No. 
And I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to work. That Kevin always does. He sits back and he thinks about it for a few minutes. And then he comes in and he's like, you know, it would work if we did this, this, and this. And I was like, well, Lindsay, who does, who's my better half and does PR for the company, you need to have that conversation with her. I'm not going to be there. And I come back. I was like, so what do you think? Stupid. Just like, Wait, what? so had you given him the idea? Yeah. Which, the, like, it's not a, the concepts. But it's like every year you close for a month, month mm-hmm. and reopen as a wholly new <laughs> yeah. restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like, this is Terrifying. a thing that, you know, next in Chicago reopens with a wholly new menu. Yeah. But it's just a new menu. Like, it's not a. It's a I think I've never been there, but from I've, just what I've read, it's like the different thought processes and like, we're going to do Rome from the 1700s right. and we're going to do, you know, England in 1932. Yeah. So I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Really. Um, so, so you've been a steakhouse for year one. Yeah. We opened in January with one fifth steak. Um, and soon you're going to be closing. July 31st. And reopening as romance languages, languages, which I think is great. So are you, are you hitting all of the romance languages? No, we're focusing on French, Italian, and Spanish. So no Romanian or Portuguese. You might see it come in there. <laughs> I think we gotta, we got to focus on those three first because, quite frankly, um, you know, having opened Catalan and understanding the Spanish culture a little bit and being trained classically French, I feel like those two I might have a better grasp on. Italy, terrifying. Yeah. I don't know anything about Italian food. I mean, there's a couple of resources out there. That yeah, there's a, there's a lot out there. <laughs> there's like but one like, or two books. <laughs> it's, and that's what we've been doing a lot of reading, and we're going to Italy in a, in a month. Um, Fine. Next month. Yeah, I just want to, I, I need to see it. Like, I, it's not so much the food, but it's the people and the culture. And so I want to see that. Because in Houston, you don't, you, don't, you don't see that as much, right? Yeah. There, there's like 40 Italian folks. You know, there's there's probably more, but like there's you don't see a lot. Well, and also I think just like fundamentally, like <coughs> it's great to have a beautiful, perfect plate of gnocchi in front of you. But mm-hmm. unless you going to Italy to experience this is fantastic if you can. But like, you know, unless you understand why it is that we're making the gnocchi out of potatoes and that they have this shape, like what yeah. is the history and the I geologic forces and not just what, but why? Because I, I feel like pasta. It, it, Man, I don't know if I should. Well, anyway. Um, yes, you talk should. Talk about yeah. pasta. Well, we love pasta. I, I, I love pasta, too. It just, I want to know the history of it, right? Yeah. I want to know why um, carrot and this and that go in this dish. But, like, if you're just doing it to do it and you're making a different shape and calling it a different name to confuse me, like, uh, yeah, it's delicious. But at the end of the day, what did I learn from it? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I want to know those things. And some of, some of my guys at One Fifth, and they understand pasta more. I don't really w- want to focus on that for me personally. I want to focus on the actual culture and the dishes outside of pasta. Uh-huh. Be, they can do a couple pasta dishes on the menu if they want, and I'll just go with it and learn from it and be like, I'll probably be the guy that like, well, so tell me this. Like, why? Like, I'm the why guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like, well, we're going to do this dish with this and this and this. Okay, why? But what is the history behind this and why, why is this important? Why are these ingredients going together? Why is this doing that? Why is this textured this way? Why, you know, it's so I want to know, don't just give me a plate of something and tell me this is why, you know, this is it, but I want to know what's behind it, why your thought process went into it. What's the, you know, it, that makes sense to me. It's like just looking at, you know, a pasta dishes on Instagram today. I'm like, well, they're telling me it's this, but why, yeah. you know, and I, I gotta know, I gotta know. Hey, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Chris Shepard to have an advertisement. Greg, 
Yeah, what's up, Helen? Are you hiring anyone right now, or have you ever tried to hire someone? Uh, I have not. I'm not currently hiring someone, but man, I have tried to hire people, and it is, uh, without question, uh, a really difficult thing to do if you don't have any sort of guidance or resources. <laughs> Guess what? What, Greg? You're not going to believe it. No, no. What's what's happening? You can get both guidance and resources with ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click, massively efficient, and then their powerful technology effectively matches the right people to your job. The smart, talented, capable go-getters that you're looking for will find you. You just screen and rate and manage your candidates all in one place on the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard, and boom, you hire someone terrific. Right now... Eater Upsell listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for absolutely free. Wait, no money? By going to wow. no money, zero dollars, okay. by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat, E-A-T, like Eater Upsell, but only the first three letters. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. For completely free, you can try out ZipRecruiter, the different way of finding great people to come work for you. So does every dish at Underbelly and, you know, this new project that you have, One Fifth, and maybe at all your restaurants, so there has to be a conceptual, conceptually it has to make sense mm-hmm. beyond culturally just Culturally it has to make sense. Culturally. Mm-hmm. So are you, does it have to be faithful or does it have to play with the rules in a certain way or some combination? No, it has thereof? to play with things, you know, if, if I, I'm not going to cross the boundaries of like, well, you know, I've had cooks come up and say, I want to do this. I'm like, well, that's very Japanese and this is very Vietnamese. You can't do this. You know, this you, you got to go one way or the other, right? You're going to show a culture. Don't just blend it all and throw it. It has to be true to this. You can change the textures and flavors of this dish, but it still has to follow the guidelines of the thought process of where it came from. And it still has to show homage to where it is and who you learned it from. And that's more important. So there is the why, you know. And so it makes the it makes cooks and myself and my chefs have to learn like they, they, you can't bullshit it. Like that's the biggest thing. Like don't bullshit it. Be true to who it is and true to what it is and true to because I don't want <laughs> if we do an Indian dish and the Patels come in, I want them to have it and be like, yep, you're right. Yeah, I get it. You know, if we do a Korean dish and the folks that, that do the dumplings for us and then I buy kimchi from that, they come in, they're like, yeah. You know, nothing makes me happier than when they're bringing, you know, you know, 10 tops in of their friends so they can show their friends what they do through our food. Like that, that to me is like the highest honor. So what comes after Romance Languages? Fish. Really? Yeah. Houston is, an, I, I'm going to say, a horribly embarrassing and stupid thing as a Midwesterner who turned into an East Coaster. I didn't realize Houston was on the coast. Yeah, yeah. like how did I not know this? I think in my head I thought it was Dallas minutes. or something. Houston. Yeah. I mean, Houston is a, is a fish town. It is. Yeah, we have so much fish that comes in out of our waters. It's unreal. So is it like the it, entire? You, you, a lot of it you get here. So you know, a lot of these groupers <laughs> and like right, the red yeah. snappers, it all comes out of our waters. So, um, so yeah. are you doing specifically Gulf fish? Are you gonna no. the world of the of, of water uh, so animals? There's two different things. Um, so. Yes, at one-fifth, we're going to focus into fish from around and and just kind of have fun, right? I've always wanted to do that. Underbelly this summer, I'm going to change a little bit, right? Because I want to. 
What are you going to change? Um, for five years, we've been doing the whole animal, right? So every week or every other week, we get an entire steer in. And so our menu focuses around a lot of beef because we need to use it. I'm going to stop doing that for a summer uh-huh. and see what we get out of that. Is this related to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is that you are going to start serving the Impossible Burger? We already just did. Yeah. Last week, yeah. Which is such a, a fascinating addition to such a meat-focused restaurant. I feel like the Impossible Burger is kind of being sold as, like, the veggie burger for carnivores. It, it kind of is, yeah. And it's it's really delicious. I, 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 I like it a lot. Um, you know, when they first came in and approached to me, I tried it, and uh, I was like, I'm not supposed to like this, <laughs> but I do like this. And it, it, to me, it's not so much as a the vegetable option, right? It's just a sustainability option, right? And I have, I have to say that um, is it something that I, I will focus on and eat all the time? Um, I don't know. But <laughs> is it something that I think if you don't support something in the beginning, then it, it will fade out and then we'll lose that forever when I think that you have to look at something and say, you know what, our population is growing in the world and if you can't start something someplace – then eventually we're going to be in the shits. Yeah. So is moving away from whole steer part of the sustainability thing? No. No, 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 no. Um, It's more of I love and my cooks love cooking fish and vegetables and just doing straight vegetable dishes and straight fish dishes, but we don't ever really get that opportunity as much because, I mean, it's a 1,000 pounds of beef. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. Got to use it up. We have to use it. And so I just – the question is, like, I went from doing – a steer every week to I saw my cooks like and myself included get lazy. Right. And like you would just use certain things and it's like, no. So I started doing it every week, every other week. It's kind of like, um, in winemaking, you don't water the grapes, you make them struggle Hmm. and they get better. Yeah. I wanted to see if that philosophy would work in our kitchen by not doing one every, every week and do just going every other week and see like, okay, now you have to use these really weird cuts. And you got to figure it out. So now what happens when we don't? So when's this starting? Uh, next week. How do you feel about it? I love it. What's going to happen? You know, we're expanding our waters. We're expanding the thought process of um, we're just going to go from the southern waters, so all the way up into Virginia, the coastal aspects, so we can get stuff from the Carolinas and and just start to bring in these things, but really focus into the cultures of the city as well. You know, and that's where the process of like, you can do this, you can do Thai, you can do Middle Eastern, you can do this, but now it has to be a seafood focus. And, I, and I'm so excited. The cooks are so excited. Hi. Everybody is so excited. The staff is like, because it got to me to the point, like, you know, we would do these family style beef shanks. You know, you get a cow and you have four 15 pound shanks. And groups of 10 would eat. And I just looked at it. I was like, I can't believe that people are like, I can't believe we're serving this. You know, it's like so massive. It's too much. You know, it's just too over the top. Let's scale it back because we really do fish well. And it was the underbelly of underbelly. Mm-hmm. It was a side of things that people didn't see. That's very clever. You like that? <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. Actually, Gary and my <laughs> chef was like. first good. time you used that, I, I imagine. <laughs> Actually, it was like Gary, my chef de cuisine, was like, well, this is the underbelly of underbelly. I was like. You're brilliant. Oh, my God. All right, let's text that to everybody right now. <laughs> so how how are your how are your customers, how are your guests going to react to this? I feel like I, fish know, can be a hard sell sometimes on a menu. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of change, if you can't tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like to just try and push things, you know, and if it works, it works. You know, I don't know how long we'll do it. You know, we could get back into the fall and be like, you know what, let's start doing cattle again. You mm-hmm. know, it's I don't it's not a problem, but it's just. 
I want to see what happens. What is the thought process with the cooks and the staff and our clientele and our guests? <clears throat> How does that change? What is a perception? You know, what is a thought? Because we sell a ton of fish when we, ha- you know, there's always like two or three fish dishes on the menu, but I want to see what happens when there's five or six, you know, and, and what happens when we can focus in a different way and it pushes us in a different way, you know? And, and so I like to see, I'm a big test ground person, you know? So Okay. So you're coming to the end of a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And you're reaching a moment where you're deciding to take a step back from serving as much beef at Underbelly. Mm-hmm. This seems connected. Are you? Are you? I mean, do you think that part of why you're interested in moving towards fish is because you have outstaked yourself? No, I mean, I, I just I, I always want to be pushing us as as a restaurant and everybody around us to not get like complacent. Mm-hmm. And to push harder because I think it just makes us all better. And so it's not a I'm tired of beef thing because I'm not. I like it. I don't go out and eat giant steaks. I just can't. Like, I'm never going to do that. Like, I haven't. Like, I never thought I wanted to open a steakhouse. But I cooked a steak at home one time and I was like, ha And it was like, I'll share a steak with, with you, but I'm not going to eat it myself. Like, I don't know how people can come in and get a 36-ounce bone-in ribeye and just sit down and crush it. Like, it just drives me baff- – it baffles me. I feel like that's 100% like a pissing contest thing. 100 yeah. It's, Even like a 16-ounce ribeye. Yeah. Like, that's a lot. It's like, fuck this cow. <laughs> it's a lot of meat. And yeah. I just – you know, I appreciate it when it's cooked perfectly. Um, But I just want to see what happens. That's – really my philosophy about a lot of things. So what comes after fish? Don't know. Really? Yeah, I've not even thought about it. Four and five, not a clue. Because like three years ago, I mean, we're talking three years, right? Three years ago, if you said open a steakhouse, I'd be like, no. Two years, you know, if you said open romance languages, I'd be like, what are you talking about? No. It'll, it's kind of one of those things like, and it comes from a lot of travel and seeing other things like, I really want to do this, but how would we do it? And so... That's the question that will come eventually. What I love so is, is uh, when you look at the one fifth website, it has it is divided into five segments, and the last two just have question marks on. There. It's like <laughs> everybody's like, you know, don't you? I'm like, no, <laughs> I have no clue. So is this is it all? Are you like God, King, and decider, or is it no. is it decided sort of by committee? Um, I think a lot of it will be me, but a lot of it is is like my chef and my business partner and like what. Because the goal is not, like, to just do something to do it. The goal is to, like, what would happen if I opened this? And how do we portray it? Because this wasn't, like, a an idea of let's just do it to do it. This is actually a business plan of, like, how does this functionally work? Because now most restaurants have to sign, you know, 15-year leases or what have you. I can do it in a year and see if I like it. And if I don't, I don't have to do it again. And but if you I'm, like it, would you spin it off yeah, into a channel? absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's an incubator. It is, 100%. You know, it's this was, what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, <laughs> what what is the end-all, be-all, right? Instead of doing five and to see if each one works, what if I just did all five and one and see what I liked, right? Because at some point I have to narrow it down, right? And so I've been talking about doing a fish place for a long time. You know, I've been looking for a spot to do that because I just, I mean— when we go to Charleston, we just plan up at the ordinary. 
When we go to New Orleans, we just plant up at Pesh. And that's like home base for us all the time. And I, just because I love that. And so I've been wanting to do that for a long time. So I think maybe that's where the fish part of it comes in because fish is your three. And I just can't wait. <laughs> okay. Right. It's, it's a, I believe that when you got an itch, you scratch it. And so if I'm feeling that, and that's, I think that's really where the fish part of it comes in is I really just want to do it. I love seafood towers. Oh, my God. A seafood tower is a wonder to behold. It's one of my favorite things on the face of the planet. So what's on your ideal seafood tower? So I really like the one-fifth one right now. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I put together okay. the seafood tower of my dreams. All right. right? Take us through so it. So it's got shrimp cocktail because you got to come on. Yes. But, Perfect. But super important shrimp cocktail question. How many shrimp should you as a diner expect to eat in a sitting with a shrimp cocktail. I mean, can you eat more of the size, right? You look at the size. So if we do 16, 20s, um, I don't think... That's 16 to 20 a pound. pound, Yeah. Yeah. So they're the bigger ones, Mm -hmm. right? Gulf shrimp. Um, Two? I mean, three, maybe? Like, if you could order your own if you wanted, but if you're going to do a tower, we put six on it. Um, And they're a good size, right? Six is a good number. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about shrimp cocktail. And then there's shrimp remoulade that goes on there, too. So that's the smaller shrimp aspects because they're a little bit sweeter and a little bit more delicate. White or red? White. White remoulade, correct. Okay, good. Um, Well, we do put a little ketchup in it, so it's more pink. Okay. Splitting splitting the difference. But is it paprika? Okay. We're we're not going to go too far down this level. I don't put paprika in it. Um, (laughs) And then there's crab meat ravigat. Right. Love this. Yeah. So with but we, we add um, crispy shallot to it. And so it gets that real crunchy and cabbage. So it's like this texturally crunchy, cool. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, we do Gulf oysters and then East Coast oyster. And then um, what's your eating method for a Gulf oyster? I don't put anything on. it. Holy shit. Really? Yeah. Well, OK. We'll talk about Gulf oysters. Okay. Because um, there is like the Texas oyster that is more of a cluster oyster that's a bigger one, right? Yeah. So that's a roast. Yeah, because those are to me that's a gigantic, roast. terrifying the, hell beast the, oysters. Delicious raw, but I think that um, there's Alabama has really brought forward the Gulf oyster a long way. Um, with they do it in drop nets, and so they don't sit on the bottom. They kind of move with the tide, so they develop these really deep shells really briny salinity, smaller oysters. And man, they're a pleasure to shuck. They're a pleasure to eat. Um, I just, I think that they've really got it down and we kind of want to see that start moving into Louisiana and to Texas. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the Gulf oyster. can tell you're very future. stoked for the seafood uh, iteration. Yeah, I don't, and the thing is, I don't like oysters, right? I technically don't really want to sit back and kick back a dozen oysters. I don't want to do it. I want one. One perfect oyster. I want it shucked right. I don't want it split. I don't want it stabbed. I want it right. And I want just to taste the waters of where it's from. Right. So when we go through all these different oysters at the restaurant, like I just go in and I shuck myself one just every time just to try the salinity level, the texture and like where it's from. I want to know the terroir of the oyster. So, um, but that's why I, I'm a purist on that. Like, I just, I don't, you know, everybody's like, can we lemon them up? No. Because I don't want to taste what the lemon tastes like. I want to taste what the oyster tastes like. So there's always a cocktail, the mignonette, and lemon and hot sauce. Um, we do, uh, last year, we got in a ton of, like, Fresnos. And so we made uh, 
60 gallons of hot sauce <laughs> and then got in. Um, I asked our friends at Highwire uh, Distillery in Charleston. I knew they were moving to bigger barrels, so we bought a bunch of their 30-gallon bourbon barrels, and so we just barrel-aged all our hot sauce. In oh, it. my God. So it's awesome, right? It's perfect for a Barrel-aged hot sauce, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Um, and then king crab. But um, the thing with seafood tires is you always go out and you get the crab and you got to – or lobster or whatever, you got to pull it yourself. You know, you, you spend a lot of time working. I don't really – seafood tires aren't cheap, and so I don't want to work. So we do all the work for you. We do like this king crab salad with like tomato and um, kind of a sweet mustard. So um, how many vertical tiers are we talking? Three. Three, three is, yeah, because otherwise it's not three. a tower. No, no, it's not. It's got to be. Yeah, it's three. So oysters on the bottom, um, all the jars. We put everything in jars. And then the top is like uh, we'll do a lobster salad, shrimp cocktail, and uni panna cotta. Uni panna cotta? Yeah, it's like peanut butter happiness with sea flavor. God, it's so good. Because <laughs> it's just like uni pureed and set with uh, milk and gelatin and then crushed bene seed or crushed peanuts and bene seed on top. And this is like a little chili gastric. <laughs> that sounds wild. It's, it's delicious. It's that delicious. So that's weird. that's like the seafood tower for me. So when you open this fish place, it's just going to be all seafood towers. That's literally like the whole menu will be like, yeah. would you like a seafood tower? That is all you Pretty have much. on offer. Like that's our, you know, we do so much stuff at Underbelly and like cast iron that we're doing the cast iron seafood tower. It's weighs so much. But <laughs> wow. it's like uh, crab fingers marinated in, in uh, fish sauce and chilies and lime and like knock bomb chum. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, we're just taking all the cultural influences and doing a seafood tower that way too. So it's really kind of nice. Smoke fish salad with garam masala. God, <laughs> it's that dope. It's so dope. Good. There's a I'm standalone seafood tower concept somewhere in here, you know? Maybe like a, could a fast casual seafood tower. I don't know. <laughs> Just get it to go. There's a little plastic trays stacked up. Go. Yeah, it's like this huge vertical bag. I would that would be you use like tiffin boxes, like stacked tiffin boxes. Yeah, yeah people I love, love those salad places, you know, fast casual because there's no I mean, seafood's great for you. It's very healthy. I'm just, just okay. Put that so out hot there. right now. Yeah, I love a good seafood tower. Honestly, I I believe very powerfully that all I really need in life is like a bunch of oysters and a bunch of shrimp cocktail, yep. and I'll be yep. happy. I'm good with it. Yeah, I really I, I I am sticking on this. I love that you have six shrimp and six shrimp in the seafood tower. Like I have been burned so many times by parsimonious shrimp portions. Six uh, is, and six then it's is good. Also, how you cook shrimp too. Like that's the I, I think that with shrimp cocktails a lot of times people just will steam shrimp or just like boil them in salted water or with a little limp. No 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 you gotta actually take care of that water. So that's that's a big thing for me. What's the what's the what's the properly cared for water? Well, I char onion in in a rondo and then char lemons and then um, celery onion, white wine, hot sauce, Worcestershire, like a lot of salt, Creole seasoning, and then just kind of let them sit until they're almost probably halfway done and then pull them. This is straight porn for me. This is fantastic. Right, right? Because yeah. most of the time you get a shrimp and it's just like this flavorless thing. Yeah, it's the vehicle for the cocktail. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But it, I think it has to work the other way. Right? And it's just my personal opinion on shrimp. And I think that going to a passion and having Ryan Pruitt's shrimp changed my th whole philosophy on things. It's so perfectly done. And so and, and it's like that's the goal. Right? The, the to future to is full of shrimp. Cooked by people who care about them. I think. Treat it tenderly like a lover. Yeah, you have to. This is my dream world. <laughs> Literally 100% of the reason I was excited to get married when I got married a couple years ago was that I could have all of the shrimp cocktail. <laughs> 
It turns out you don't have to have a wedding to do that. It's in fact much cheaper to just go to just a restaurant it. and get ten orders of shrimp cocktail than to have a whole fucking wedding. But like, <laughs> but yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's priorities, right? Yeah, gotta have it. Cool. Well, Chris, we have arrived at the portion of the episode where we throw the floor over to someone else to ask you questions in our lightning round. All right. Woohoo! Today, we have a guest lightning round question asker who I think you know moderately well. Yeah. It's Amy McCarthy, oh, cool. our editor of Eater Houston. Fantastic. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the Eater Upsell. Hi, Chris. This is Amy McCarthy from Eater Houston, and I have some lightning round questions for you. What's your all-time worst kitchen injury? Um, all-time worst kitchen injury. I was breaking down a pig in the middle of uh, a wine dinner. We had, I, I was like, I got to get this thing broken down. I need space. And uh, I went through a feather bone and split my artery in half. Ugh. What? Uh, How did you, you recover go. from that? What was I that went to like? the hospital really Oh, quick. my God. You have a giant wound on your inner arm. Yep. Beep, beep. That's incredible. There's your artery. Beep, beep. Holy shit. Yeah, no, we just went one clean swipe right into it, quick in, in and out, and it was like a, um, a water, like a sprinkler system. That's. So yeah, I went. Um, Were I, you just sort of watching it happen and know. being like, oh I my just, god! Beep, beep. I was like, uh oh, we had it everywhere, and I was just like, all right, and I looked at my my general manager at the time, and I was like, all right, I need to go to the hospital right now, and he looked at his keys and he looked at me, he looked at his keys and he looked at me, and I was like. You're afraid I'm going to bleed all over your car. Just call an ambulance. Asshole. And like, I'm sorry. I no, should not judge people. No, I don't it was know. it was funny because I knew how he, I knew how he is about his car. Like he's very just in life. That's how he was, and that's all I understood. I was like, just call an ambulance. I'll go. Just make sure somebody's standing out front to turn the lights off. Make sure they come in the back door. I'm not going out the front. I'm not. Don't don't disturb service at all. And you so, held it together while you were oh, yeah. bleeding out in the manner that yeah. like like. That that's a death wound. That's yeah. literally how people kill themselves is well, by slicing that artery. And then I got to the hospital. And I told them which hospital not to take me to, and we ended up at that hospital. I was like, I told you guys, and they put, um, you know, they they fixed the problem, right? They just put they they put four stitches across the top, but didn't address the artery part of the deal. And they're like, you know what? There's another one that runs on the south or the the bottom side of your arm, so you'll always have blood flow to your hand. You'll be fine. And then within a day. Um, yeah, that didn't really work out so well. Within like a day, my arm looked oh, like a giant blood sausage, basically. Oh, my God. That is one of the craziest, scariest yeah. kitchen how, how did you come to have so I've much familiarity heard. with which hospitals in Houston not to It was go one to. I drove by on the way to work every day, and I was just like, I don't ever want to go there if I have to. It like, just had that look to yeah, it. Yeah, it just had, and that's exactly where we went. But, um, and so I, I called my one of my clients, or one of my guests is a good friend. He's the team doctor for the Texans. And so I called him and I sent him a picture and he was like, you're going to go see this guy in the morning. And so I went and they put my artery back together. Holy shit. So that was a great question, Amy. My God. <laughs> All yeah. right. Let's see. If you can... Not too many people say that, right? <laughs> wow. Okay. Amy, what's your next question for Chris Shepard? Is Tex-Mex good? Yes. I mean, yeah, of course. It, it's, it's, um, there's something about queso. That's a movie, right? It should be. It should be. <laughs> if it's not, um, I, I love it. I love fajitas and I love queso and I love refried beans and I, I love the whole aspect of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100%. Salsa, bring it on. Let's go. You should do Tex Mex after fish. Uh, no. no? <laughs> not something I ever want to get into. <laughs> I like to, I want to enjoy it and go eat it, but I don't necessarily want to do it. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I think it's a thing. I think it's delicious. I think there's all different places to go try it. Um, 
but yeah. What are your beliefs about queso? Okay. Yeah, I knew this was going to be a good question. No, I, you literally just adjusted in your chair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a belief about it. I think it just it you, it always needs to be doctored a little bit. I'm not a big fan of when they put like ground meat into it or fajita meat into it. I don't want you to upsell me on queso. I just want the bowl of queso. I want some chilies on the side. And I like to just, it's really weird. I'd like to take the chip and just let it sit in there for like three minutes. And so part of the chip gets soggy and part of it stays crunchy. That's just my personal. And then there's the nacho thing. What's the nacho thing? Are you a pile or are you an individual nacho person? That's, I think, one of the great social schisms of our time. I'm a pile person, 100%. Yeah, but then what happens with all the chips on the bottom of the pile that can't get anything on top of them? They do eventually. They get soaked up. But then it's like so you got so you got to get the ones that have a lot and then ones that don't have any and it's a perfect balance. Oh. You got to go for the top and the bottom. You can't just go, always go for the top. It's got to be a real tactical approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a to me it's it says a lot about people. Like are you willing to share everything? Right? Are you willing to get dirty together? This is a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. Ooh, America is a that, plate of nachos. <laughs> I would vote for that. That's great. All right, Amy, do we have another uh, question for Chris? You have a lot of famous friends like Bun B and Whitney Merciless, <laughs> who's an investor in One Fifth. Who is your most famous partner. friend? I, I don't know. They're all just people. I'm not going to allow that. I allowed you to say that earlier when we were talking about immigration, but I'm afraid I have to put my foot down. <laughs> who's uh, Now what? What was who is your most famous friend? We can we can modify this. If you... I, I don't know. I think I mean Whitney is my business partner, right? He's an amazing football player, so I see him all the time. You know, I think one of the coolest experiences I got to do one day it was a late lunch at Underbelly, and I got to introduce Lyle Levitt to Bun B. Damn! And that was because they're both friends. Lyle came in for an early lunch, and Bun came in for a late lunch. And I was like, I asked Bun, I was like, you want to meet Lyle Levitt? He was like, yes. Are you serious? And I was like, yeah. And I asked Lyle, I was like, you want to meet Bumby? He's like, yes. And I was like, cool. Come here, guys. Uh, it was kind of cool to see, you know, two musicians with totally different ends of the spectrum, but both equally, like, could be mayoral candidates in Houston. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Um, to to get them to meet together, it, that was one of the coolest things. It all happens at Underbelly, just making making connections there. Yeah. It's a magical place. Yeah, that was that was that was kind of a highlight for me. What's your what's what's your favorite Lyle Levitt song? Um, if I had a boat. I agree. That is the best Lyle Levitt yeah. song, correct? All right, Amy, what's your next question? Or step inside this house. Those two are equally interchangeable for me. Where do you get the best pedicure in Houston? Isle Petty Spa. You answered that very quickly. Yeah, Michelle at Isle Petty Spa, hundred percent. How often do you get pedicures, Amy? How did you know that? Chris Shepard gets pedicures. Is this common knowledge? Yeah. Is this a Houston, Houston thing? thing? No, it's just a me thing. Oh, that's cool. I've been doing it for like eight years. My toes are always deep steel blue. I'm a huge Texans wait, fan. Wait, seriously? 100%. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So wait, how often do you get a pedi? Mm, as much as I possibly can whenever like I have time. Weekly? Monthly? No, monthly. Yeah. When it's like when there's, you know, when we have a Sunday or something that doesn't really require me to do anything or, yeah, we'll go. How'd you get into that? Uh, I just went one time and I was like, this is awesome because yeah, I'm on my feet, you know, 16, 17 hours a day. You got to take care of that. I, you know, there's nothing wrong. Sand it up. Greg, have you ever had down. a pedicure? No. 
It's amazing. I, uh, it. I, I'm actually 100%. always jealous of uh, people when I walk by Manny Petty places. It looks like it's like some kind of very inexpensive uh, form of pampering, though. You know, it looks. It's great. I it, should do it. Know, I should just do it. Aisle's not the cheapest, but I get. You know, you, we go. I we take I take other chefs when they come into town. They come do an <laughs> event with me. That's part of the deal. We go get pedicures. They take them to Hamilton shirts. And we get custom shirts and like, it's awesome. Um, but it's one of those things like. We go in, we get a private room. I can watch football on a Sunday. I can have a bo- I bring a bottle of wine with me. Like, what's wrong with that? So, this That's is perfect, your fourth or fifth uh, concept for one fifth, I think. Pedicures like, <laughs> and TV? Yeah. yeah. And bottles of wine? Oh, it's man, a wine I mean, bar with petty stations. <laughs> it's awesome. That's such a good idea. Yeah. yeah That'll no. come after Tex Mex, which is coming after Fish. It, it really kind of <laughs> weirds like my, the, my staff when I walk in, and like, if they don't know. Uh-huh. And I have like flip flops on, and they're like, "Your toes are painted." I'm like, "Yeah." And you have a tattoo. What? Are you, what what's the point? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I, fuck I, your gender I, norms. <laughs> this is great. I love it. You know, <laughs> it's like you should probably go do this one Saturday or Sunday, and you know, take care, take care of your feet. It has always been baffling to me that pedicures are like considered a women's thing because no. everybody's feet hurt, and pedicures yeah. are literally the greatest thing in the world. I love it. They're so good. I awesome. would do it every week if I had the time. Okay. And now, Greg, you're, you're going to have to get one. Yeah. I'm going to go journalism. right. right. Why don't you come to Houston and I'll take you out for one? Oh, man, I'm there. Yes. It's funny when I have chefs come in that have been there before and then like, so what color my toes going to be this time? <laughs> and I'm like, you, you, okay, you want to do that again? Okay, let's do it. You know, it's, it's hilarious that the chefs actually that come back in <laughs> when I bring them back in to do other dinners or whatever, they're like, are we going to do this again? Cause that was awesome. This makes me so happy. Cause now they go out and they do it at home, you know? That it's it's fun. I love this. Decolonize the pedicure. This is great. Yeah. All right. Amy, do we have a, another question for Chris? What's the hardest part of cooking for football players? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so we do this thing, and this is how Whitney and I became good friends, um, where it's just my general want to do things with people, is four years ago he came in. And this is Whitney Merciless, who's outside linebacker with Texans. He was like, I realize that how I eat is how I play. And I was like, you're brilliant. He's like, so I need you to help me find a chef. And I was like, what do you need? He's like, I just need my meals. He's like, I can't go out all the time. And I, I just feel like I get, you know, I don't want to eat. When I come in from practice, I want something that's really healthy for me and, and balances. And I was like, I'll do it. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, we'll figure it out, man. Don't worry about it. So I taught him how to use a circulator. And um, I work with... Uh, the nutritionist for the Texans, and we figure out what his uh, need for protein, carbs, vegetable, sugars, all that is on a, on a weekly basis. And so we put their meals together. Um, and then we did it for him. And then the next year, everybody else saw, like, you know, they made fun of him. Like, he'd come in from practice. They're like, what's in the fishbowl? Because they'd have the water bath going, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it'd be like his meal. And then so you'd, just like, vacuum seal it? Yeah, he'd vacuum seal it and send it to him. We'd send him all the directions on how to do things and, like, what to do. And, you know, so he does it. He can do it at home at night, and do the, the, the nutritionist does it for him at lunch. Um, so, and then we do the snacks and everything else. And then it turned into 10 players the next year. And it was it was a lot. Like it was having two people do it for two days at a time, and it just it was it was too much. Like I don't ever want to do that again. 
because it's like, I only eat this, I eat this, I eat this, I don't eat this. And my nutritionist says, because they all have their own personal nutritionist, and it's like, I need 20 ounces of cooked lamb every meal. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? like, right. And then like one guy's like, I only eat eight ounces of chicken. Like, what do you, what are you about your starch? I don't want any of that. I just want the chicken. I'm like, no. Like, and so it was more, you know, it was a calf scramble most of the time. So we just do Whitney now, and that's it. Anyway, I was like, I don't... We're not doing this for a financial gain or anything. You know, it's not cheap for us to do it, but you have to understand, like, our rules were very easy. We will make your food, and you will come pick up your food, and then you will bring the cooler back the next week, and we'll just trade you out. And if we had to hunt you down, we didn't do it anymore because it wasn't – we weren't doing this for us. We were doing it for you, so if you didn't have the commitment to yourself, we weren't going to – it didn't make sense. So it was like trying to follow, okay, you need to come pick up your food. You know, send a text. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. And then they would come, you know, it's like Monday. You'd be here Monday. And then they would show up on like Wednesday. And I'm like, I don't have cooler space for this. We're done. You know, so it's it's kind of hard. But Whitney has been the most focused on it and the believer of it. And like if he can't pick it up, his, his mom or his dad or his brother will come pick it up. And so he's the best, you know. But that's where our relationship spawned. And when we decided to do one-fifth, I was telling him, I was like, hey, I'm going to do this. He was like, I went in. I was like, dude, maybe you, you <laughs> just hold up, relax. And he's like, no, no, no. I want, I want, I've always want, you know, he's, we've always talked about doing something together, but just not knowing what it was. And he was like, I want it all. <laughs> I was like, you need to talk to all your financial advisors because they're all going to tell you don't invest in restaurants. Yeah. And they all told him if he didn't do it, then he was making a huge mistake. Wow. So I was like, all right. Yeah. It's a sign you're doing something right, man. Yeah. I guess Underbelly's raking it in. It does, it does yeah, good. Yeah, do. it does good. I mean, it's just, it's fun. You know, we try to have fun with food. That's it. All so. right. Amy, do we have any more questions? If there was one thing you wish the rest of the world knew about Houston, what would it be? I, I, I think we kind of talked about that a, a few minutes ago. Um, I think that Houston is a breeding ground for understanding people. And I think that um, Houston has done it so well that um, you you don't cross, you, there's no lines to cross, right? Everything's just out in the open and you can understand people for who they are and be accepting and want to learn. And I think that, I, I don't know, I can't say that about everybody, you know, but just as a general rule, um, because we don't have any zoning laws, you know, everybody's everywhere. Um, you know, when my mom says, I want to go have... Like, what do you want to go do for Mother's Day? I want to go have Korean barbecue. I'm like, that's awesome. You know, and then she gets inspired by the people there, too. I think that um, that's the thing that the city can teach the rest. I think Houston's done a really good job of that. And um, I'm really proud of my city for that. It's very heartfelt because I feel I live in a, a, a place without boundaries. And um, I'm, I'm honored to be able to cook that way. Well, Chris Shepard, thank you so much for joining us here on the Eater Upsell. Thank you. Um, If our listeners want to check out your food, they can find you at Underbelly and at One Fifth in Houston. (laughs) Where else can they find you? Um, Hay Merchant, which is connected to our craft beer bar uh, next to uh, to Underbelly. Blacksmith, which is the coffee shop across the street. And then if you ever go to a Texans game, (laughs) we're on the club level, too. Are you on uh, Twitter, Instagram? C Shepard 13. There we go. Cool. 
will check you out. Thank you so much for joining us on the Upsell. As always, beautiful Upsell listeners at home, if you have not subscribed to our podcast, please subscribe. It's what keeps the lights on for us. (laughs) And if you are subscribed, tell a couple of friends about what we do over here. We love doing it and we love having you be a part of it. If you have any questions, comments, compliments, gifts of exciting animals doing cute things, please send them to me and Greg at (laughs) upsell at eater.com. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener, you. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.